All right, guys, this is, the, we're about it. This is about it. I still feel really loud. He's going to give me a minute. He just said, give me a minute. I'm going to ramble while he's fixing. Oh, that's, that's good. That's good. Are we good? All right. Is that better? Testing? There we go. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Good job, Todd. <laughs> um, I know, I know. Let's, uh, let's do this. Let's just, I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to pray. I had a whole other thing I was going to say. I'm not going to say any of that. Let's just jump right in. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hit this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this day, and I thank you, God, that we are here. Lord, I thank you for the snow coming down outside. Lord, I thank you for the beauty that you've done in all things. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that, Lord, because of what you've done, we have hope beyond what happens in this world. And I just praise you for that. I pray now as we look into Luke and into this final week of your walk on this earth, God, I ask that you'd help us to see clearly what you would have us to see this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Get my clicker here. Luke chapter 20. I'm trying. I'm trying to get done. I'm trying to wrap up all of Luke before I'm done. It's not going to happen, but I'm trying. We're going to get through, we're going to go through a whole chapter today. Um, my dad's not here to cut me off, and so we're going to, I'm thinking two. You guys good with that? Two o'clock? No? Um, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Like I said, we're in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, just let your mind think about that for a minute. I mean, he is less than a week away from his crucifixion, and he would know that. No. I have a, if anybody wants it, I have a list of uh, a harmony of the events of that, that final week. I've got a, a sheet of paper I printed off I was going to mention and say, if you are interested in seeing that, how the Gospels talk about that last week, I think that could be a good thing. But here we are with Jesus, and what did he just do? What was the last thing we did just two weeks ago? What was the last thing he just did? He, came, he just came into Jerusalem, and instead of heading to the Roman governor's house and booting the Romans out, where does he head? The temple. And then what's he do? Throws some table. He throws down, right? He tips over the tables. He drives the merchants out, and he makes some proclamations. Now, you have to understand, he is in the capital city of all of Judaism. All of the leading religious leaders of his time were stationed here. And he just walked into the central point, the central place of all of what God has been doing on this earth up to this point is at that temple. And he walks in and he starts throwing tables. He's now, and we know that he is probably most likely every day going to the temple and teaching and talking 
and sharing this. In fact, it says he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. That's one word in the Greek. It's evangelizing. He's proclaiming good news to the people. This is Jesus. Now, I think we're going to see some things because I'm going to go through this whole chapter. We're going to see a few things. Number one, you're going to see this. I'm just going to tell you right at the beginning. Number one, you're going to see a Jesus who is fully and completely and absolutely Lord of all and in control of the situation. You're not going to see a Jesus who has the things that start to get out of hand. He is in control. Okay? That's going to be really important when we get to the end. Now, we know where this story is going, but don't let yourselves forget that. This is a Jesus who's fully in control. Number two, I think you're going to see in this chapter a master class of a master teacher in some verbal sparring. In fact, we got five rounds are going to happen in this, this chapter, right? Round one, round two, round three. We've got a five rounds that are going to come out. Okay, boom, boom, boom. There's going to be this verbal interactions. There's going to be a lot of debate going on, but it's not going to be quite like you may have imagined. In fact, I would say Jesus becomes, and I think it becomes very obvious that Jesus is less interested in proving a point and more interested in addressing the actual listening audience. There are people that he knows who have ears to hear and there's important things he's saying. So keep that in mind. Finally, we're gonna learn some things about God's kingdom. So let's go on to round one. I almost, I tried to think of, I, I have one at school. I've got a bell. I was gonna bring it like ding, 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 round one, right? Jesus start. I mean, he kind of started it. You gotta admit it. I mean, he went to the temple and tossed some tables. So here we are, Luke chapter 20, verse one. Round one is about ready to begin. The chief priests and the elders, the scribes come up to him and they say to him this statement, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? What's the sphere of authority? I mean, he just can't, he did something pretty profound, did he not? To go into God's temple and flip tables and make proclamations is a pretty profound thing to do. And he just did that. And so the religious leaders come and they go, state your authority. Who's author who gave you the authority to do these things? I think the scribes are hoping to set him up a little bit, but honestly, they're looking for a statement from Jesus whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus is gonna turn this over. I mean, he flipped the table. He's gonna flip these tables too. His response, he answers their question with a question. I mean, remember, who are these people? The religious authorities. They're the ones who are making statements and making proclamations and determining things and saying, this is this, is this and this is this, and we're gonna make some. And so he turns around and he says, I've got a question for you. Now, you tell me, you make a statement is what he says next. You tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay. I, I'm glad, I'm actually feeling something I was hoping to feel, a little tension. You feel that little bit of tension there? I mean, this just an awesome response question, isn't it? These people would have known John the Baptist. He was a well-known, well-loved, well-liked preacher. Did, was John going around doing miracles, by the way? No. 
What was he doing? He was preaching repentance because the Messiah was coming. And then John had actually made a statement. He goes, hey, when he saw Jesus, what did he do? He said, there he is. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. Oh, there he is right there. So this question is a question about Jesus's own authority as well, is it not? Beautiful question. John is well known. The religious leaders, instead of answering, they got to convene. I picture them huddling. You picture them? Huh. Huddle. All right. Huddle, guys. Huddle, guys. Okay. Now, I don't know how we know this, how Luke knew this. I, I think there's actually some possibilities because Luke, Luke talked to witnesses and we know that some of these Pharisees eventually became believers. And so my guess is probably one of them was there and told Luke, oh man, this is what was going on in the huddle. I don't know. Okay, guys. Now, if we say from heaven, right? John's authority. We say John was from heaven. He's going to say, have you ever done this in, a, in an argument with somebody? Start playing out what you would say and then what they would say and then, when, when then I would say, but then they would say this. And, and so they, that's what they're doing. They go, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? Because they hadn't. But if we say for man, well, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Now, let me ask you a question. What's their answer, by the way? Oh, come on. This is obvious. What's their, not what they end up saying, but what is their real answer? What do they believe about John? He's for man. This is so revealing, is it not? They've got an answer. They know what it is. That's what they want to say. But they are swayed not by what they're, even their own convictions of things, they're swayed by fear of the people. It's interesting when you look at some of the other accounts of this, there's pl- the Matthew and Mark's account of this, there's places where they will say to Jesus uh, these complimenting things. We'll see some of those in just a minute. They'll say some complimenting things to him. And one of the compliments they like to give Jesus is you have no fear of people. You will say what you believe. They don't even have that. You know, it's interesting because this ought to be, I mean, if you were one of these guys, ought this not to be in your own mind? I mean, think about yourself for just a second. Have you ever known what was right, but out of fear, questioned what you would do based on what would happen? You you know, that's one of the things we're gonna see in all of this is that it becomes very obvious and apparent. In fact, I'm gonna make this proposition. It's very obvious and apparent to most of us what the truth is and what you ought to be doing. Most of the things we like to bicker about, most of us, I mean, down somewhere deep, and I think most of us know it, somewhere deep, we know, I know this right. I know that's wrong. And even in this, we see such an amazingly revealing thing. So they, 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 they huddle. Okay, we say this. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We got, I don't know. We don't want to. I don't want to get. Do you want to get stoned today? I don't want to get stoned today. These people are going to get mad. Okay, well let's, well, let's not do that. Ooh, I got a perfect answer. Okay. They come back out, out of the corner. 
I mean, Jesus dodged one, right? They come back and they got the, they, this, is, this is their answer. Uh, we don't know. Oh, wow. These are the religious authorities. And they go, we don't know. They think they know, but they're not even willing to say what they think they know. And Jesus' response then is this, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Think about what just got accomplished in, this, in round one. Everybody there knows, regardless of what was said, where everybody stands. Isn't that amazing? What a profound little play that just happened there. But them trying to get around at him, them trying to put him on the spot, he just very easily laid it out. So everybody around goes, we know where they are. We know where he is. We know what's going on here. It be, suddenly becomes very obvious, does it not? I, I love this. I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. Jesus. Anyone who's listening knows Jesus' authority is from heaven. That's what he would claim. He didn't even have to say it. Everyone knows that they are sitting there going, we don't think so. Everyone also now knows that Jesus is brave and they're weak and scared. Round one, who wins? Jesus does. Jesus is in control. Number one. Number two, his preaching and his message are from above. This kingdom has authority from above. Round two. Now they came out in round one. Round two, it's going to be Jesus. So he, he's got him on the ropes, right? So he comes at him in this one. He begins to tell the people a parable, a story. He says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. Now, just to be honest with you, normally this would be the beginning of a new sermon. I would have stretched that last one out into a sermon. This would have been a new sermon. I'm not doing that to you. We're, we're just crowded all in here. And I think that what I found is there's a good part of this because, man, these things all tie together. So he tells them this parable, and we could go into great detail, but let's just skip through all of that, and I'm just going to tell you exactly what this parable is meant to represent. It's meant to represent God's people, Israel, okay? Those religious leaders are representatives of Israel, speaking on behalf, and so he makes this statement. He tells the people, man went and planted a vineyard. This is God. Goes in. What did God do? He established a kingdom. He picked Abraham out of nobody. He establishes. He takes him to Egypt. He takes him back. I mean, all, I mean, he just summarized a huge chunk of Israel's history in one statement. God planted a vineyard. Okay? And he goes away. He leaves them to grow, to do what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be being God's people on this earth. They're supposed to be being a light. They're supposed to be a beacon to the whole world of what God's people look like. That's what they're supposed to do. So he comes along, and in this story, it's like a vineyard. He says, the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you fulfilling God's purpose for who you're supposed to be? There's no fruit. The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, I think that you could probably figure out who are these servants coming supposed to represent who do you think? Who comes and talks to the Israelites every once in a while? Prophets, 
right? Every once in a while, God will send a prophet along. Come on, guys. This, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. not fulfilling. This is what you should be doing. This is where, and every time, in a summary way, every time, ultimately, the prophets get rejected. We have little times of revival in Israel's history, but ultimately, what it's a downhill slide the whole time, worse and worse. And there are some prophets who are beaten and eventually killed. God sends servants, and we get this picture. I mean, this vineyard owner could have easily just said, I've got the law on my side. This is my vineyard. They should be producing now. They're not yet. I could have sent in his troops right off the bat, but God is represented as a loving God who gives time. And that's exactly what he does in this story. He sends a second servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully, sent away empty-handed, and he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So God has established Israel. They've not been doing what they're supposed to do, and they're not a beacon to the world. And then the vineyard owner says in verse 13, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Jesus is obviously now talking about himself. The end of all these prophets, God sends Jesus himself to Israel to proclaim the good news to Israel that they might believe and turn and fulfill what God has called them to do, and they do not do it. Jesus says they sense them, perhaps they will respect him in this story. When the tenants see him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then, Jesus asks, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What will the owner of this vineyard do now that he sent his own son and they killed him? What will the owner of this vineyard do? I think you could figure it out, couldn't you? Jesus goes on to say he will come and destroy those tenants. And because God's purposes will continue and will stand and he has promises he must fulfill He's going to give it to others, he says. They hear this and said, and we don't know who the they is exactly. Is it the religious leaders? I think probably. I think it could have been others around listening. They say, surely not. The Greek here that's translated, surely not. One of the other places you see that you don't see this anywhere else except for in Paul's writings. One of the examples is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what does it say in the old King James? God forbid. It's that strong of a statement. No way. What are they saying? They know what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you don't accept this, God's going to take his purposes and his plans. He's going to give it to other people, meaning the Gentiles. They know what he's saying. This isn't a big mystery. And they're like, no way. I mean, we're God's people. There's no way he's going to just say, forget it and go a different route. That's not going to happen. No way. And he looks, I love this next verse. He looks directly at them. Ooh, I feel the penetrating look. And he's like, eye contact. He looks directly at them and he says, and and, and I've read this different ways. It's funny how when you read the Bible, sometimes you read it with a different voice. And I've read this one different ways in my head. Like, how, do, how did Jesus say this? I, I usually think, ah, I bet he was like, ooh, what is this? But I think probably 
as he turns to scripture and says this to a passage that they would know, I think again, he, he, he's less interested in the direct hearer. I think that's part of it. And more interested in, see, because there's all these people around listening to this and some of them have ears to hear and eyes to see. And he says, what then is this that is written? Don't you remember in the scriptures it says, we, we, we know this is gonna happen. The stone that the builders, the Jews, the nation of Israel, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner, the head of the corner. There's a new building that's gonna be built. This is an old prophecy. And Jesus says, what then does this mean? Don't you know that God's building will succeed? And one of the ways he will do it is by your rejection. That becomes the head of the corner. That's the, this is the main stone that they would, they would put down and all the lines would have to square up with this one. We know that the early Christians looked at this and they called Jesus himself. Paul does this as well, calls Jesus the head of the corner of the corner. He's the cornerstone. I think we even have a song where we sing that, don't we? He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This, in other words, this stone, this is it. This is the thing. And this is God's kingdom and his new building will begin here. If you try to fall on it, you'll be destroyed. If you get in its way, it's gonna destroy you. There's no getting around this. This is gonna happen. And so ends round two. Jesus is still in control of the situation. And we now know he is the head of the corner. The Jewish rejection of Jesus is almost complete. A new structure will come from this. This kingdom's authority is from above. We've already learned that. But now we learn this kingdom explodes the boundaries of ethnicity, right? This is not going to be ethnic Jews, God's kingdom, because they were supposed to be doing that all along. And Jesus comes in, and he says, now it's going to happen. And it's going to supersede the borders and supersede. It's going to explode. And you think of all these Old Testament prophecies where it talks about this kingdom filling all the earth. Luke then, verse 19, includes a note. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And I can't help but read that one again. I, voices, do you guys get the voices when you're reading the Bible? I, in my head, I read this, and they, for they, that part, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. I always, I don't know why. I, don't, I know they probably weren't bungling fools, but they kind of feel like it sometimes. And I imagine them going, wait a minute. <laughs> That was about us. They're mad. Jesus came out this round, told them that you're gonna reject me, but this God's kingdom will stand. In fact, your rejection is gonna be the founding of all of this. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Round three is about to begin. The leaders... I think there's a span of time, a little spell. 
they decide we, we got we to trick him. We got to stump him. We've got to find a way to trip him up in his own words because they understood mob mentality. Do you get that already? They understood mob mentality. They're afraid to do something because of the, the crowd. And so their thought is, we got to turn the crowd. Now we know eventually the crowd does get turned, does it not? But not until Jesus says, now's the time. But they want to turn this crowd. They're ready, they're ready to take him right now. But there's a, there's a special time for this death has been planned in eternity past and it will not happen a second until Jesus is ready. He will give himself to them. But they're gonna try to get him anyway. So they sent spies that pretend to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. Well, we can't get him this way. I bet we can get him in trouble with the Romans. I mean, they hate the Romans. They don't want to be under the Romans' rule. They're, they're not wanting to be part of that system. They would love if the Romans were out. But at this time, think about what's happened. There's going to be a really weird irony that's going to happen here. They are getting ready to employ the hope of the fact that they were under Roman rule to try to get Jesus. Keep that in mind. Keep that, just keep that in mind for a second. So they send spies. And their question then, they decide to ask him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Do you see, do you hear them? they're trying to disarm him. We, we know, oh teacher, we know you teach and speak rightly and show no partiality. You have no fear of people. You're gonna say exactly what you wanna say. We've seen it, right? But truly, you truly teach the way of God, which by the way, that the way of God, the word that's used there, actually becomes a nickname for Christianity before it's called Christianity. They're called the people of the way. You, know, you teach the way of God. And then they ask him a question. Is it lawful? Ooh, I have a feeling they're like, there's, there's no way he's getting out of this one. There is no way he's getting around this. It is not possible. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, let's think about it. If he says... No, we should. They're thinking the crowd will go. I mean, this, this, that was an unpopular opinion, by the way. This was a poll tax. Just for being in the Roman government, you got to pay the Roman tax. You got to do it. The Jews hated it. It was very unpopular to say we should go ahead and do it. They were always trying to find ways how we got to get out of this, right? So they, those Pharisees, what are they thinking? They're thinking, hey, if he says, is it lawful? If he says no, we shouldn't be doing that. We get in trouble with the Romans. If he says yes, we should be doing it. Then we've got the crowd on our side, and I, I imagine them—they're ready with some other spies. Like as soon, they're just waiting for him to go say the wrong thing, and they're going to go what? <laughs> Jesus, verse twenty-three. I'm not going to click it up there yet. Perceives their craftiness. And responds to them. Now, try to picture with me. He's standing there. These, they've, they've done this, right? There's already some irony. Because you're trying to call him on cooperating with the Romans. 
they're trying to find a way to cooperate with the Romans to get them with the Romans. And they're gonna say, uh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's so obvious to me and to you how ridiculous, I mean, that the son of God, is like, that's what you're worried about? You're trying to trip him up? Jesus says, show me a denarius. That's a Roman coin. Would have had the face of Tiberius Caesar on it at this time period. On the back of it would have been a, a picture of Tiberius's mother who was portrayed as uh, the, the goddess of peace or something. That's the kind of coin they would have had. Represented a day's wage, right? He says, show me a denarius. Now, I imagine, the, the, I imagine it came from the spies because that's who he's talking to. And I imagine them, I don't think they had pockets, but I'm reaching in my pocket. Uh, now, what just happened when they produced the denarius? They're in, they're in the system. <laughs> they're complying with the system. They're, all, they're bought in. I mean, they're buying and trading. They're using. This, this is their money. They're in it. They're part of it. I mean, it's ridiculous. But Jesus says, show me Daenerys. And he said, so who's, whose face, whose inscription, whose image is on this? And they're like, Caesar's. Now, He says then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If we go back to Genesis, one of the first things that we see when man is created is he is stamped with something. He is stamped with what? The image of God. Now, whatever exactly that means, that's a reality. And Jesus, Jesus just said in this, there's a bigger picture. Whether or not you're paying taxes to Caesar is irrelevant if you have not given yourself to him. Right? That is Jesus' response. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, God to the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they shut up. They became silent. Jesus ends round three, still in control of the situation. The kingdom's of authority is from above that's been established. This kingdom explodes the boundaries of ethnicity. So it's not, it's not just this gonna explode into the world. And no earthly kingdom he just established no earthly kingdom, not even one as big and as all-encompassing as Rome, no earthly kingdom has the ability to stump, stop, or stall out complete involvement in God's kingdom. You can be in here and still be part of his kingdom. Whether or not this, see, everybody wants to go to this and want to start talking about taxes to write and then we want to pull out a coin who's in scripture washington give to washington things are washington i think there's some truth to that but you're missing the point of what he's saying if that's all it means to you what's more important is have you given yourself to god that's what matters this matters it's almost irrelevant compared to that whether or not you're going to do this let him take it all you're God's. 
They can come in here and they can take everything away from you. Right or wrong, legal or illegal, makes not a lick of difference. You can never be taken out of God's kingdom. Right? Rip it all from us. I don't care. You want that? Yeah, you know, go ahead. Take your tax. I'm part of God's kingdom. And I've given my all to him. It supersedes all earthly kingdoms. Nothing has stumped him. How about a theological question? Let's go a different route. After this, there came to him some Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are those that deny there is a resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. <laughs> I tried that on uh, the other day at Thanksgiving. I was talking to my daughter-in-law, Katie, and I said that, and she goes, oh. <laughs> if I had to say it anyway, it's so good. I just can't pass it up. They deny that there's a resurrection. That is sad. I mean, they, they also held to just the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses' writings, the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch, right? They come to him, and they're like, stupid Pharisees, they can't get him caught up in anything. And I imagine that this little dilemma that they're getting ready to propose, this little thought experiment, so to speak, I imagine this has stumped everyone before. This is probably their go-to to get somebody. And so they come at Jesus with this one. This, is, this works every time. Yeah, I'm going to get you caught up in something here, Jesus. Uh, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his brother. That's what it says. Okay. Now, thought experiment. This isn't a real situation. They're just thinking, well, what if? You believe that there's a resurrection. We've got a problem, Jesus, because if you really think there's a resurrection, what about this case? Seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Poor fella. The second and the third, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like a dateline. <laughs> <laughs> Seven brides for seven, one bride for seven brothers. They all died. I'd be looking at her. I'd be, what's going on here? Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, mm, Jesus, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. You got a dilemma, don't you? Jesus says to them, got an answer the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy just threw in a little wrench there not everybody's getting not everybody's worthy you see i just tossed that one in there too those who are considered worthy to attain to that age there's, there's just there's we're, we're living in this age and things are the way they are in this age there's another age coming and it's not quite like this one I don't know a lot about it. I know that, number one, I know it's better. Number two, I know it's perfected. 
don't know a lot about it. But Jesus peeled back a little glimpse. That's not a dilemma for God. In fact, in the other gospel accounts, he says, do you not trust in the, the strength of God? Like, like God's gonna go, wait a minute. How am I gonna solve this dilemma? He says, in this next age, right? Those that are worthy to attain that age in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? For they cannot die anymore. See, it's not gonna be any longer about raising children, propagating the species, extending, right? It's not gonna be about that anymore. There's something else that's going on in this next age. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. By the way, Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. And are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But he doesn't stop. Because he knows the Sadducees. He knows they don't believe in the resurrection. He knows they only hold to that first five books that Moses wrote. And so Jesus goes, but that the dead are raised, my friends, that are so sad, you see. Even Moses showed he doesn't go to one of the later books. He goes, I'm going to go back and show you. In the passage about the bush, the burning bush, they didn't have chapters and verses, so this is the way he could have said, you know that one? Everybody knew that one? Yep, you know that one? Yeah, okay. Remember what he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? It's not, he was the God of Abraham, and he was the God of Isaac, and he was, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's promises that are still in need of fulfillment. This is a promise-keeping God. And if you think that this is all there is to life, you're missing out on some very important information because God always fulfills his promises. And so therefore, these must be alive. He is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And they rejoiced at his day. Think about that. Just think about that for a second. I know that's not in that text, but we know that this is something else. Christ says they, they rejoiced at seeing his day. Wherever they are, when he showed up, they're like, yes, it's happening. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, the scribes who, have been, who would have been more in the Pharisee party and opposed to the Sadducees anyway, they go, teacher, you have spoken well. But no one dares to ask him any more questions. This is about the end of the rounds. They're hovering in their corners. They've been beaten at every turn. But Jesus is not done yet. He's still in control. The kingdom's authority is from above. This kingdom explodes the boundaries of ethnicity. No earthly kingdom has the ability to stump, stop, or stall out complete involvement in this kingdom. It supersedes all earthly kingdoms. And it has citizens already and will extend beyond the grave. That's this kingdom. But he has a question for them. From Psalm 110, he says this. 
He said to them, now, how can they say that the Christ is David's son, the Messiah is David's son? They knew this was a name for the Messiah, son of David. We heard this in Luke. Everybody knows this is what it's talking about, David's son. For David himself, how can they say that? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And I tell I make your enemies your footstool. Now, that first Lord is Jehovah God from Psalm. The second one is a, a different word that's being used. But the Lord God said to my Lord, David saying this, calling this one Lord. David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? How can the Messiah be both son and Lord of David? That's the question. Now, you guys are all good Christians, I think, for the most part. Everybody in here? Yeah? You guys know the answer to that, don't you? Right? You know that. David, David's son, Jesus, Jesus preceded all things. Haven't we been learning that in Colossians? By him, all things were made. Yet he's also the son of David when he stepped into this world to become a man. I think Jesus in this, even in these last moments, he knows that some are listening. Some are listening. Those scribes may not be, but somebody's listening. And he's less concerned with winning the debate and more concerned with people hearing the truth and going, if not now, in a week, when he rises from the grave and they go, hold up. And they start putting the pieces together. And they start seeing him proclaimed throughout all history. And then they begin to marvel that even this leading to his death, the Jewish people turning on him was part of his ultimate plan so that the cornerstone could be established. The kingdom's authority is from above. Jesus is still in control. This kingdom explodes the boundaries of ethnicity. No earthly kingdom has ability to stump or stop or stall out complete involvement in this kingdom. It supersedes all earthly kingdoms. No matter what your situation is, you can be a part of this kingdom. It has citizens already and will extend beyond the grave. And the king of this kingdom has always been and always will be king. The final point that I have for you today is this, because he shifts gears into back to his disciples. The verbal sparring is over. They've been shut up without anything to answer. And he turns to his disciples. And I think the point of this last little exchange is this. The people of this kingdom... I. I'm a, I wrote this down. I believe this to be true. The people of this kingdom are easy to identify for those who have ears to ear, hear and eyes to see. It's not as complicated as many of us make it out to be. It's really not. He says this. I'm gonna hit 
End of chapter 20 right here next. In the beginning of chapter 21, just real quick, an example. says this. And hearing all the, all the people, he said to his disciples, so everybody can hear him. He says to the ones that are his followers, he says, beware of the scribes who, who like to walk around in long robes and love greeting in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. I mean, let's be very realistic about this. Most of the people knew that these Pharisees were full of it, right? They could see past the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And it's easy to get wrapped up in it. And, and these Pharisees are wrapped up, the scribes and the priests. And the, there's a whole system, a confusing, challenging system, the balancing the Romans. I felt like I should play like the fiddler on the rough music right here. How does he do it? Keep the balance, right? Well, how do we, you know, how, these Jews are keeping this crazy, insane balance of power in Jerusalem. And yet they're completely missing it. And the average person can see it. And I think, I think what happens next probably happened right there. And I think that Jesus, who has the ultimate eyes to see, saw what comes up next, right in the very next part of this. And he's like, these Pharisees, beware of them. I mean, I mean they're all regal and royal. And man, I mean, their language is so well put. And I mean, he just shut them all up. And then he turns around and he says, look at this, look at this, guys. So the rich putting the gifts in the offering box. I imagine he's off a distance and he gets to the side and goes, look, watch this. I think he knows this woman because he is the king of this kingdom. And he sees one of the, the citizens of the kingdom and he recognizes her from a distance. And what does he say? He says this, he sees this poor widow come up and put just two small coins little copper coins, a couple pennies. What's the point of that? In the scheme of the world and how everything works, insignificant. But in God's kingdom, Jesus sees it and he goes, I tell, I'm gonna tell you right now, guys. I'm gonna tell you something right here. This poor widow's put in more than anybody else that you've seen today. This poor widow's done more than all of them. Why? They all contributed out of their abundance. They had a plenty. It didn't even hurt them to give of what, what they had. But she, out of her poverty, put on all she had to live on. That, that's it right there. That's the kingdom. Now, whatever your situation of life you can debate and wrangle with Jesus all you want about, well, what does this mean for me to do? And I'm gonna propose something right now. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna throw it out there. I have a confidence that the very spirit of God has the ability to, in this moment, tell you exactly what he's calling you to do and if you've been following him or not. No matter what kind of arguing or wrangling you wanna do with him, I believe wholeheartedly that in this moment, the Spirit of God has the ability to penetrate your defenses and say to you, come on. You know which camp you're in? 
You're more like the Pharisees than that widow. You, yeah, you try to do some stuff. You try to do some things that God calls you to do, but it hasn't cost you anything yet. And I think you probably know in the depths of your being what God is calling you to do and which side of the fence you lie on. I don't know what he's calling you to do. I can't, I'm not him, right? I can't come over and go, let me look inside this. Oh, that's what, oh yeah. Oof. I'm kind of glad for that. I don't want to know. <laughs> I got my own things that God's calling me to do. What do you, Matt, what, what, am, what are you calling me to do? Am I giving what I ought to be doing? Am I doing what I ought to be doing? Am I following you the way I ought to be following you? Am I hearing your word and your teaching and doing all that you've called me to do? Or am I not? Help me not to be confused, Lord. And I think he can do the same for you. Now, if you're here today and you go, you know what? I am all in. Then one of the things that we do as Christians is we, we partake in this Lord's Supper. We're gonna get to this. Before this week is out of Jesus's, he's gonna institute this tradition. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Jesus is just a few days away from instituting this tradition because he wants his followers to never forget who he is and all that he did. So if I could have the ushers come up, I'm gonna distribute this. Have these guys distribute this. I want everybody to grab a cup, it's a double cup, right? If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to grab this cup, this bread and this juice and just hold on to it. I'm gonna let everybody get distributed. Then we're gonna take a moment. I'm gonna pray again, and then we're gonna partake of this to remember all that Christ has done. Let me pray first before we distribute. God, I pray for your blessing on this bread and on this cup. God, I ask that you would allow it to be as meaningful as it is meant to be today. Lord, I pray that those who partake will partake, Lord, for remembrance of what you've done for your life on this earth, for your death on the cross for the payment of sin. Lord, I pray that you would then be with those in this room who are not there. God, I pray that they would abstain until they're ready to follow you with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.
Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, as we dismiss today, Lord, I pray now one last time before we walk out of this room. Lord, I thank you that you are the Lord that you are. I thank you that you are the Lord of conversation. I thank you that, Lord, they were never able to stump you. I thank you that we can read of these things and marvel. Thank you, Lord, that all parts of who you are and your ministry in this earth fit perfectly together. I thank you, Lord, that they were not able to take you to the cross and condemn you until you said, now's the time. I thank you, Lord, that you were faithful I thank you that you made it to the end. I thank you that you took upon yourself the shame and the guilt of sin and bore it and bore the wrath of God on that tree that you suffered and you died for our sakes. And I thank you, Lord, that you did not stay in the grave but rose again, validating all that you had taught and said I thank you that, Lord, you are the son of David who now sits at the right hand of God the Father. I thank you that you are, not will be, but are now reigning and ruling until all of your enemies are under your feet. I thank you, Lord, that your kingdom will not falter or fail, though every earthly kingdom will do exactly that. They all will fail. I thank you, Lord, that your kingdom will not fail, but will last and will last beyond this age and into the age to come, a kingdom without an end. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you will do. In Christ's name, amen. You guys are dismissed.